Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Time flies when you're rooting for the St. Louis Cardinals. It has been 12 years, 12 years since Jim Bullard has held court in St. Louis. It has been an extraordinary set of opinions by Mr. Bullard over those 12 years. And of course, landmark was his, uh, a number of years ago, discussion of regime change and what that means for the Fed. What can be said of every other president, every other governor, indeed of the various and sundry chairmen, nobody nailed the dot plot like Jim Bullard. What you see now in the lousy dot plot, and everybody knows my opinion on it, is right where Jim Bullard thought we would be with some real worries of disinflation and deflation. Jim Bullard joins us today, the president of the St. Louis Fed. Jim Bullard, are we so messed up right now that we're finally, once and for all, going to shift to the targeting of nominal GDP instead of a real GDP analysis? Uh, I've been an advocate, as you know, of nominal GDP targeting and its close cousin uh, price level targeting. Uh, the committee is still formulating about its uh, framework review, and hopefully we'll get uh, some uh, statement out on that uh, sometime during the rest of this year. But it's up to the chairman to drive that process. Mr. Orphanides, a year ago, wrote a landmark paper, I believe, in the Greenspan Fed about the toolkits that are out there and the toolkits that are available. What does the Bullard and the Fed toolkit look right now? It seems like you've exhausted an awful lot of the useful tools. I think there are other things we can still do, um, but we have deployed uh, a lot of uh, good tools for this situation. I think the policy response has been quite good to the pandemic, uh, both on the monetary policy side, the liquidity programs, plus a good response from uh, the political side to get uh, fiscal uh, relief to those that are disrupted by the pandemic. So I think all of this has actually gone, given the nature of the shock and the depth of the shock, this has all gone pretty well so far. And I think July 1st is a good checkpoint because I've long advocated that this the main impact will be in the second quarter of 2020. And it's uh, third quarter will be um, <clears throat> kind of the opposite of the first quarter. Uh, first quarter is a big decline. Third quarter will be a big increase as many businesses come back online safely in a way that uh, keeps the pandemic under control. Jim, it's Jonathan here. I know the committee's thinking a little bit more about forward guidance. I caught up with President Mester and President Williams in the last month, and yield curve control was a bigger part of the conversation. Can you walk me through how you would characterize yield curve control from your perspective? Is that a complement to forward guidance, or is that something bolder where you cap yield to the longer end? Yeah, the U.S. Uh, had uh, yield curve control during World War II, uh, and then after the war, uh, it it, uh, the exit from the yield curve control was very difficult, so it kind of ended in tears. Uh, so I think that's one of the main concerns about going in this direction. Japan, as we know, uh, has done yield curve control, but one of the things that they wanted to do was uh, uh, get out of the quantitative easing program. They've, they've scaled that back dramatically by just targeting yields uh, directly. So 
I think there are a lot more questions and answers around yield curve control right now. What do you think the optimal approach to forward guidance is then, Jim? Well, I think we're giving uh, great forward guidance right now, and I, I think there's really no problem uh, with where we are today. We're projecting low rates of you know, policy rate far out into the future. Longer-term yields are also quite low. Uh, global yields are quite low. So, And, and we have uh, the advantage in the current situation that we already built up credibility for low rates and commitments to low rates uh, through the last crisis. Uh, in the last crisis, there was, uh, as you might recall, coming out of that in 2010, 2011, 2012, the markets were always expecting that yields would leap back higher at any moment. And the committee tried to fight back against that and keep yields uh, low all up, uh, by, by promising low rates further into the future. But, but in the end, we built up a lot of credibility that we really meant it, that we were going to keep rates low. And so this time... Uh, we have a lot of credibility on this issue, and I, I think we're, I just think we're in great shape for right now because of the credibility we built up last time around. Jim, the market definitely is buying that rates will remain low for a long time. Back in 2015, you raised the issue of asset bubbles that will come on the heels potentially of leaving rates so low for so long. Given how much corporate debt issuance we have seen, what's different now? Yeah, I mean, uh, bubbles is always uh, always an issue, and I do keep my eye on it. But again, I, I just not seeing things that are of the same magnitude as as what happened in the late 1990s, uh, the internet so-called dot-com bubble that, that blew up on us, and then the much more serious housing bubble in the mid 2000s that also blew up and, and turned into a global crisis. But I'm not seeing anything like that right now. Do keep. Uh, we do watch it closely. Uh, you know, I understand that companies are taking on debt. Some of that's, you know, liquidity driven to get through the uh, pandemic here. Um, uh, they're drawing on lines of credit and, and other sources to make sure that they can uh, survive and thrive through a time of low, uh, low revenue for their business. So, um, so far, so good, but we we'll certainly certainly watch this closely. Jim, are there no negative consequences then to keeping rates basically at zero for the indefinite future? Yeah, I th you know, there's always inflation risk uh, lurking out there, but we haven't had an inflation problem in the U.S. or globally uh, since uh, longer than most of us can remember uh, sitting here. So um, the problem has been on the low side and the threat of uh, disinflation or deflation. Uh, on that score, I think we're also avoiding that risk, at least for now. Uh, I see tips break-evens uh, moving back up in, in recent weeks, uh, which seems to suggest that the committee retains credibility around its 2% inflation target, even though we've missed that target somewhat to the low side. It hasn't been as good as we wanted, but we have kept it uh, you know, relatively close, and I think we'll be able to do that this time as well. Jim, it's not the presence of bubbles that I think gets my attention. It's the absence of creative destruction. And I want to ask you an important question. Why the Fed seems to have lost confidence in the transformational powers of capitalism? Well, uh, you'll have to talk to others. I've not lost uh, faith in the, in the transformational powers of capitalism, I think. Uh, uh, what you're seeing today is a tremendous adjustment by so many businesses to uh, unwelcome development where we had this uh, disease descend upon us. Uh, we've learned a lot about it in the last uh, 90 days. Uh, we're, we're figuring out how to run businesses, deliver goods and services in all kinds of nooks and crannies around the economy. 
in ways that keep everybody healthy, keep the customer safe, keep the workers safe, and uh, still uh, you know keep household incomes up and, and keep people employed. Uh, so I think we can be successful on this dimension. There are a few businesses where uh, where the pandemic is really throwing them a curveball, and they really have to hustle and roll up their sleeves in order to think about how they can deliver their product in this new environment. But yeah. For most businesses, I think they'll be up and running uh, in the second half of the year. Jim, I totally appreciate the motives of the Federal Reserve to do what the committee has done over the last couple of months. But I think we do need to talk about the consequences. Once you introduce a price-insensitive buyer into the credit market, you are interfering in the transformational powers of capitalism. You are stopping the money from flowing away from bad businesses to good ones. Do you not appreciate that, Jim? No, I do, but I think the key question here is uh, is you know bad businesses. What do you mean by bad businesses? If they were if they were uh, viable and successful before the pandemic came, uh, most of those I think are going to continue to be viable and successful in the uh, in the the world ahead, where we have to deal with the with the disease. There may be a few that don't uh, manage to make that transition. I don't know. Uh, but the demand for those products is still there, and uh, I would say for most firms, uh, they 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 want to maintain liquidity <clears throat> during the crisis here, and they'll be able to get back up and running uh, uh, with some uh, changes to how they deliver goods and services uh, in the second half. We welcome all of you. Our extended conversation with Jim Bullard here on our simulcast on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. He is the president of the St. Louis Fed and has been exceptionally acute in his research over his 12 years at the Fed of advancing not controversy, but just the argument of the moment. That argument of the moment, I have to revisit it, Dr. Bullard, is yield curve uh, control. And what I find so distortive here is the Fed will make an action, the Fed will make a statement, there'll be a speech, there'll be some form of announcement, and you know better than anyone, the market will react to that. Can't the markets adapt to yield curve control and diffuse any benefit of it, diminish any benefit of it? Uh, I do not think that the uh, markets would undo uh, what the Fed is trying to do. I think it's an equilibrium. Uh, I think we've enforced that equilibrium by be, trying to be more transparent about the debates and ideas that are going on on the on the committee and the analysis. I think there's a lot of give and take uh, between uh, markets and policymakers, much different than it would have been in the very shrouded uh, days of the 1980s, uh, where we barely barely said anything, um, and right. markets had to infer what was going on. So I, I think uh, I think that transparency is useful. Um, I think we're wrestling with these ideas just like everyone else, uh, but um, but I think that it helps inform the equilibrium to, uh, to be as transparent as possible. But this extremely well said, Dr. Bullard. Now, we have Dr. Williams of the New York Fed and Governor Brainerd, and they've made some comments on the efficacy of yield caps. I look at you and others more circumspect as well. If we do yield curve control and we distribute that out the yield curve, and I don't know what year or month or day you're going to extend it out to, do we set ourselves up to be more vulnerable to any given exogenous shock? Uh, I, I'm not sure about that. You, you'd have to, you know, it, it kind of depends how you interpret the, uh, the Japanese experience uh, of the last few years. Yes. Uh, a few other countries that have uh, have tried this in the modern era 
Um, you know, I, I just think, you know, right now there are more questions than, than answers about this. And I don't really think uh, this is a pending thing for the committee because we're already expecting rates to be low for quite a while. So uh, I'm not sure that you need to put uh, caps in or right. anything else. Uh, you've already got the low uh, expected rates that, that you desire for this situation. Very quickly, Dr. Bullard, what does yield curve control mean to retirees and savers in the St. Louis district? Yeah, a uh, longstanding issue is that uh, uh, we should be thinking about the correct interest rates, not the lowest interest rates. And a lot of the discussion, uh, popular discussion, always always seems to assume lower rates are better. Uh, I think you do want to get to the uh, the equilibrium rate that makes sense for the current environment. Um but the current environment is one globally of very low rates uh, all around the world. And uh, that's the world we're living in. I think people have adjusted to that since it's been around uh, since uh, 2008, 2009. President Bullard, a lot of questions coming through on the Bloomberg terminal that many people want to ask, including Mr. Gapen over at Barclays, who I think recognizes what a lot of people pointed out after the last Fed decision and the dot plot, why the long-term dot was still at 250. President Bullock, why wasn't that adjusted? And do you anticipate it will be in the coming meetings? Yeah, as you guys may remember, I don't put in a long-term dot. I'm the only guy that doesn't do it. So I'm, I'm a rebel, maybe without a cause here. But uh, I do, don't think we know enough to put down that long-term dot. And it, it affects expectations and it affects thinking in, in markets. Um, and, but it's also the object for which there is the most uncertainty. So I would prefer not to put down uh, uh, some kind of guess about where we're going to be 10 years from now. No one knows. And talk more about the relevant time horizon for monetary policy, which is probably about two years, possibly three years at the very most. So, um, so I'm the wrong guy to talk about the, the long run. President Bullard, you are the right person to talk about inflation. And you said that the Fed does retain its credibility around a 2% inflation goal. Are we measuring inflation right, or should we be taking into account asset price inflation, the inflation in housing costs, the inflation in medical and education costs, and even food? Yeah, uh, great, uh, great question. The measurement issues around inflation are uh, very serious. Uh, it has been studied extensively, but if you really get into the issues about how to construct a price index, uh, it gets very uh, hairy very fast. And, and uh, one thing I would just mention on this measurement issue for right now is that during the second quarter, you have a lot of goods that were trade were really not traded, uh, you know, in, in the normal volumes that they would have been, or volumes went all the way to zero. So what should you do with those in the price index? You know, uh, because they're always weighted by the shares of expenditure. Well, the share of expenditure went to zero. So are you not going to count those prices or, or what are you going to do? Uh, because you have markets that kind of shut down completely in that environment. So um, so I think there are fascinating issues right now, uh, just in the last few months, about how to interpret the inflation numbers. If you look at something like the Dallas Fed trimming, which throws out the most extreme observations, it's still hanging right around 2%. And I'm, I think that's probably informing the market expectations about where they think we're going to end up with inflation.
Well, there's a question also about good inflation and bad inflation. A lot of people looking at the fact that wages are not increasing as quickly as some of these necessary costs that everybody faces on a regular basis. Are you seeing more bad inflation than good inflation, especially as there is this protectionist shift and people do bring supply chains back home? Yeah, I think uh, we were getting uh, better wage growth uh, before the pandemic. I think during the pandemic here, obviously, we, we've asked people to uh, stay at home, invest in the national health. Uh, we've asked businesses to um, temporarily uh, shut down to invest in the national health. They've received uh probably somewhat uh, inefficiently, but they, generally speaking, they have received relief from the federal government for their efforts to, um, to slow down the economy. Um, so it's a little hard to measure uh, wages or, or total income of households and businesses really during this time period. So I think we have to wait for the dust to settle. Uh, I think the third quarter will be a transition quarter. Like I said, I think most businesses will get back up and running and be uh, actually be close to uh, the kind of production that they had uh, previous to the pandemic. And then a few businesses will struggle more than that. But um, so far, so good. I actually think we're, I think we're, we're doing all right, uh, given the, the nature and size of this shock. I would say one other thing I, I just wanted to mention, and I don't know if you guys want to talk about it, but I actually think from a public policy point of view, we should not be emphasizing uh, vaccines and therapeutics. I hope they get they happen. And, uh, you know, I, you know, God bless the uh, people that are working on it. I think they're, uh, they're doing great work and everything. But these are tough scientific problems. And that affects from my point of view, I'm the I'm the economics guy that's affecting expectations, and affects how people uh, behave. So I think what you should tell people instead is, uh, we're going to have to uh, manage the disease. We're going to have to manage the risk that's out there. It's unpleasant, but there's a new mortality risk, and uh, businesses have to adapt. Uh, households have to adapt, and everyone's doing that. We we know that, and we see that, but we shouldn't promise that there's some uh, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow here. President Bullard, that's exactly where I wanted to go, this idea that we have a very long road ahead of us. And there's a question about how resilient bank balance sheets are to deal with this. And it's something very much at the forefront of people's minds ahead of the stress test results that are coming out by the Federal Reserve later this week. Would you support having banks curb any dividend payments in order to shore up their balance sheets further ahead of whatever secondary effects, tertiary effects we can expect from the pandemic? Yeah, this is a decision for the Board of Governors, so uh, it's separate from the uh, Open Market Committee, which I'm on, um, so it's not really my uh, purview. Uh, I would comment, however, that I think markets have probably already priced this in. Uh, my sense is that uh, you know the Europeans have already ended dividend payments, and uh, markets probably expect uh, something like that to happen in the U.S. But um, but it's up to the governors on to uh, how they want to look at that. We've got the stress test uh, results uh, coming up shortly here, and I think that'll inform uh, how how the governors want to go on this uh, going forward. Jim Bullard, thank you so much. Very generous of you to be with us for this extended conversation. James Bullard is the president of the St. Louis Fed. Jonathan Golub of Credit Suisse moves his price target from 2700 to 3200 I'm not sure if he'll like that characterization, so we'll let John tell his own story. He joins us now. Jonathan, good morning. Let's start with a short one. Why? 
Well, I mean, if there's a simple story here, it's it's not that I think that the economy is going to be magnificently better. It's that the the fact that we've taken out these downside risks, all of these government actions have eliminated or at least diminished the potential for this thing to double dip down to the levels that we've seen before. So I think that the upside, when we were calling for about 3% upside through year end, I think the upside has been limited, but the the risk to the downside has been. And and John, you and I were talking about before we we went live, that the single chart that's important to me, on your Bloomberg terminal, you can see the number of bankruptcies that have been filed. And if you go to max on that to see it, you know, including the, the um, downturn in 08, 09, that during big recessions, you see a massive spike in bankruptcies. And that is not happening here at all. Businesses are not going under because of all these actions. And that's one of the reasons why I think that we're not going to double dip, even if the upside is not there. Another reason why the next 30 days is so important on the policy front. What do you need to see, John? Uh, you know, I, I think that you're 100% right. There's, um, there's two big issues I think that are important. This PPP program, this is the money that's going to small businesses to keep them afloat. That rolls off at the beginning of July. And then you have this government supplement of the $600 a month that's going to people who are unemployed. And both of those are rolling off in the month of July, the unemployment running at, at the end of the month. Those are going to be a real political football And if they are not rolled over and we see the consumer wallet, it takes a hit, that is going to be a real big problem for the economy near term. And the market will absolutely not take that well. The problem is, is that Congress is not going to be debating these issues until sometime in July. So we're going to feel pretty uncomfortable about these before it gets resolved one way or another. John Golub, I'm going to cut you some major, major slack on, you know, the cheap shots the media's taken on. He was bearish and now he's bullish and all that. But what I'm fascinated by is, is what would be the next tranche of optimism from you? Where does it come on the income statement? Does it come from revenue growth doing better or is it corporations adapting to this pandemic, to this economic crisis, and they make margins better? Which is it to get you to the next tranche of optimism? If you're asking what what would make me if if I were to if we were to be talking in six months months from now and you were to say this is what happened that that's going to make this the upside much more it's not going to be this more liquidity because I think that we've already seen the market's response the question is how quickly do we get back to an economy that's running at a hundred percent and so let's ask the question. When is it that, that commuters are comfortable going back into New York again? Um, when is it that we're comfortable getting on airplanes again? Um, when, you know, when is it that we can get over 20 million mm-hmm. people that have been unemployed back to work? And, and the answer to right. each of those is longer than you would think. So the worst case is out. We're, the improvements sequentially off the bottom. We know that that's going to be good. The PMIs this morning are going to be good. The question is, if you're looking up at the sky, not down at where you were when, there was, when we were staying at home, that's what's going to really drive right. the market. What do the banks do here? You do a great sector analysis. Where are you on the financials? Yeah, you know, when I was speaking to Susan Katsky, who's our, our bank analyst, is terrific. I mean, the, one of the challenges, first of all, the good news is if the economy is going from um, 
pretty well. Um, the the credit losses probably don't end up being as bad as, as we all think, and that, that's a positive story. On the other hand, um, net interest margins for banks are, are a problem longer term if you have really low interest rates. So um, the banks, I think, are going to be um, a little bit more um, more challenging. Here's the key. They not Different than the last crisis, banks are not going to need to raise dilutive capital. There's not going to be a re-regulation environment. All the really ugly stuff that happened is not there. The question is, is you know, what does their profit, margin, profit model look like in a lower um, rate environment, especially one um, where economic growth longer term may be a little bit weaker? When you talk about credit losses being mitigated by the fact that we're probably not going to get shutdowns and that the stimulus has mitigated the worst case scenario, I'm wondering what the increase in virus counts in places like Texas, where the governor's come out and said that it's unacceptable how quickly it's spreading and the potential for additional shutdowns, how that factors into your thesis. Is that factored in or do you think that that's a bear case that is sort of an outlier at this point? No, Lisa, and I, I, this, we are obsessing on this issue. And so my team just ran some numbers last night, and what they found was that, that, first of all, two things are happening. The number of cases is spiking primarily in the southern half of the U.S. and California, and in the north, the number of new cases it continues to fall. Um, however, the deaths are not going up anywhere, um, or let's say anywhere, in any of the major regions. So even in areas where the case count is going up, and a lot of people are saying, is, yes, but that's a delay and it's going to happen later. We don't think so. What you're finding is that the people who are getting sick now are younger people who are going out because they're not concerned about the, the downsides of getting the virus. And so the people who are getting sick are not showing up in intensive care units or at the hospital, and they're not dying. So it's very possible that we're seeing, or not very possible, I think what we're seeing is pretty rational behavior. People who know that they could survive this are going out, they're living their lives, they're getting sick, but not in a way that, that's going to be, um, that's going to cause another shutdown. And this is what it's going to feel like in an environment where we're going to have to live with this for, for a long period of time. So I think that the, we're not going to be seeing a, um, a, anything which looks like a national shutdown. Could we see individual local markets or a city or region for a very short time? Maybe. But even that, I don't think it's going to happen. If we did go and see a shutdown, that's obviously a really big problem. But I think that um, I don't think these numbers are inconsistent with each other. Jonathan Gollop of Credit Suisse. John, appreciate your honesty, transparency and your time this morning. Send our best to the team over at Credit Suisse. Jonathan Gollop of Credit Suisse. Megan Green joins us now from Harvard Kennedy uh, School. And Megan, what's so important is you synthesize the experience of the United Kingdom of that shock of Brexit over the shock that we're all living now with the pandemic. How do we extract ourselves from a pandemic? Is it an act of God and we move quickly, or is it going to be a long and slow process? Well, unfortunately, I think we're looking at a pretty long, slow, uh, hard slog. Um, you know, the data has bounced pretty quickly um, in May and June in particular. Um, so some people might be tempted to say, hey, look, this looks like a V-shaped recovery, but getting the first 20 percent of those who lost their jobs back into the workforce is a lot easier than getting the last 20% back in. And, and there's a host of downside risks 
as well, both in Europe and in the U.S. I mean, no one or the markets don't seem to have noticed that the number of new COVID-19 cases in the U.S. has gone up by 55 percent in the past week. Um, I think that's a huge risk that isn't being priced in. We saw confusion over, you know, trade with China and the U.S. also um, causing jitters in the markets. But, you know, there's going to be trade tensions as as this election comes closer. Regardless, a hard Brexit is another downside risk. And none of this seems to be priced in. You know, Megan, and WTO folks out moments ago with, I think, a negative 18 percent statistic on world trade. We're still checking on that. Megan Green, I look at the slowdown and the bounce back. And what it comes down to is to use the word inefficacy of fiscal placement. The great critics of MMT would say you can't do fiscal stimulus in a narrow, concerted manner. Can we prove that this time is the exception? This time is different. We can win with fiscal policy. Uh, fiscal policy can certainly help here. Uh, and as we look at the U.S. stimulus pipeline, it looks like it's it's drying out and, and it will make a huge difference whether we re-up some of that or not in the U.S. But certainly, I mean, the more targeted we can make fiscal stimulus, the better. The problem is we mainly have top-down tools. Uh, so we've had to provide things like checks that aren't targeted at all. Um, but I'm constantly asked whether we're doing MMT. Um, and MMT isn't really something you do. It's, it's more of kind of a, a school of thought. But I do think to some degree what the MMTers get right is that we don't have to raise the money in order to spend it. We can just deficit spend. And that's the obvious answer for any major economies who are facing incredibly low borrowing costs for the foreseeable future, like the UK uh, and the US and even even the Eurozone to some degree. So, I, you know, I think we are right to be deficit spending like mad to try to dig ourselves out of this hole and to try to fill the hole, first of all, and then to try to prompt a, a recovery. And yet, Megan, the policy effort seems to be really lumpy, particularly here in the United States. I caught up with Bridgewater in the last 24 hours. I'll be catching up with Bob Prince tomorrow for the Bloomberg Investment Conference for anyone that wants to watch that. The duration mismatch is something they're focused on. Bob Prince over there mentioning that we keep applying these three-month band-aids to something that could last 18 months and maybe longer. Megan, what do you make of that approach? I think that's absolutely right. In fact, I don't even think we're applying a three-month Band-Aid. We've applied a two-month Band-Aid for the most part in the U.S. for small companies and for those who have been laid off. Um, and I think this is going to be a much longer, harder slog, as I mentioned before. So we're either going to have to re keep re-upping it, and investors are going to trust that we're going to keep re-upping it, um, or there's going to be some kind of market dislocation. And I think there is a problem in politics. We saw it in 2008, 2009, that at a certain point, policymakers start asking questions about how we're going to pay for this. And again, that's a totally inappropriate question to be asking in the middle of it. Um, we can ask it afterwards how we how we figure this out. And the answer is deficit spending, particularly for the U.S. Um, it, but, you know, if we end up having policymakers wringing their hands and refusing to pass more stimulus, then that's going to have a huge impact on our recovery. And I think it will be an even longer, harder slog than it otherwise would have been. And this is why we need automatic stabilizers, I think, to turn programs on and also to make sure they don't get turned off too soon so that it's not a political process that just happens based on the data. And there's some work uh, being, you know, done on trying to implement automatic stabilizers in the U.S. Europe gets this a bit better than we do here, um, but hopefully we can build some of those in um, for the next crisis, even if it's a bit too late for this one.
Well, Megan, what worries me is that there's some policymakers taking their cues from markets right now because markets are elevated. Some people don't feel the urgency to do more. How instructive is the economic data itself over the last month for policymakers as they try and calibrate what the next move should be? So to be honest, uh, most of our economic indicators are pretty backwards looking and out of date by the time they come out. Um, But they're already starting to show a bounce. uh, And a lot of the alternative data, high frequency data that we're looking at also shows a bounce. So that takes pressure off of policymakers as well. And as I said, it looks like a V-shaped recovery right now. That was always going to happen. We're always going to have the best growth figures for all kinds of things ever um, off of a really, really low bottom. Um, And that will be politicized. So President Trump and the Republicans will highlight how we've got the best growth data ever. The Democrats will highlight that it's from the worst uh, base ever. And both sides will be right. That will be really confusing for people. And I think that will muddle the debate on whether to do more. So I don't actually think the economic data is going to be helping in the short term. But as I said, that quick bounce was inevitable, but it should slow down. It's going to be much harder to pull people into work the longer this goes on. Megan, you said that the U.S. should be deficit spending like crazy. Should individuals, should corporations be deficit spending like crazy? Because they are. They're borrowing a ton. And there's a question, is this just prolonging the pain that is inevitable anyway? So no, um, sovereigns are different from households and companies in that they never die. Um, They never actually have to pay that debt back. They don't usually pay that debt back. They just roll it over um, for years and years and years. And households and companies can't do that. So the same rules don't apply. Um, that we have seen record corporate debt issuance. And, you know, could that be a problem coming down the line? Absolutely. We we started this off with a bit of a bubble in corporate debt. Um, at some point, that will come home to roost, but not while rates are going to be pretty much at zero for the foreseeable future. I think that pushes that problem further out into the future. If the U.S. doesn't continue fiscal stimulus with additional rounds of checks and re-upped enhanced unemployment benefits, could we see this come home to roost sooner? In other words, could this bubble uh, pop in a way that becomes problematic for markets and the economy? Oh, definitely. I mean, don't forget that 70 percent of our economy is consumption. Um, And if we don't re-up unemployment uh, insurance benefits uh, and checks, Um, but particularly unemployment insurance benefits, um, the PPP program, which has been extended a bit, um, that's, we're facing a cliff edge in terms of people having jobs and being able to spend. On top of that, you know, I really hope we see something for state and local funding coming from the federal government. Without that, I think it would be very difficult to avoid a double dip recession. So fiscal policy really will make a difference here. Megan Green of the Harvard Kennedy School. Megan, always fantastic to catch up with you. Thanks for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. Right now, someone Washington loves to hate. What's known in Washington is you get a quick read, a quick little paragraph, a little snippet of the gossip out there, and the acclaimed Christopher Kruger of Cowan goes the other way. He writes hyper-detailed research notes that you swear at on a Friday evening because you know you're going to waste an hour and a half on Saturday reading them. Mr. Kruger uh, joins us right now. Chris, I loved your research on unemployment dynamics in the swing states. To me, that's absolutely fascinating and speaks right to the fulcrum, uh, the fulcrum rather, of this election. What do you see in those swing states right now? Well, we saw those six key states, and the six are three in the Rust Belt, three in the Sun Belt. So you've got Arizona, Florida, Michigan, North Carolina, 
Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. That's going to determine who's the president next year. Donald Trump won those states in 2016 by a little over 450,000 votes. Uh, and in the last 13 weeks, there have almost been 9 million unemployment claims. Wow. I mean, that, Which, that shows you the gradation here. What is, yeah, Chris, what is the pandemic overlay on the history of 2016? How does a pandemic fold in to those six swing states? Well, I mean, I think it, it's not just the, the unemployment numbers here. I mean, you know, not, not to be morbid, but you also have, you know, enormous, enormous death tolls here. What you've also seen, particularly in a state like Florida, which is an absolute must win. If there's one state that Trump cannot afford to lose, it's Florida. Uh, and you're seeing now Joe Biden, uh, you know, above with the, the 538 aggregate poll numbers outside of the margin of error. What you're seeing in Florida is that absolutely vital 65 and older age cohort uh, breaking against Trump towards the vice president. I think you have to, you know, extrapolate that that is a direct result of, of the pandemic and sadly those those death totals. Chris, how much does the employment issue suck the oxygen away from trade issues, which were so important in 2016 and will likely be very much on the forefront heading into November? It's a great question. I mean, look, you know, the, the Iowa caucuses were, you know, less than 150 days ago and the president was was gearing up. For a, a, a re-election campaign based on prosperity uh, and security, with the China Phase One trade deal as a as a central sort of linchpin, you know, to that re-election that was going to be delivered via the MAGA rallies, and now, you know, I think that the Phase One deal, which you you referenced to in the beginning of the show, has become a, a political uh, vulnerability for the president. I think both. The vice, former vice president and President Trump are going to attempt to use China really as the ultimate bipartisan foil here. Uh, you have a very hawkish Congress uh, with Hong Kong as probably the next big catalyst reports uh, as well that that new quote unquote national security law might be implemented as early as July, not as September. So I think the, the China narrative is going to be uh, uh, is certainly going to stay with us uh, through the fall and longer. It'll stay with us. It'll stay with us. The question is what the tenor of it will be and what the focus will be. There's a question about culpability. I know the Senate is holding a hearing on that later today. There's a question about tech supremacy. And then there's a question about increasing protectionism that we've seen and certainly was a major driver in 2016. How much is that still a major driver given the economic outcome of some of the policies put in place over the past four years? I mean, I think it's really kind of, it, it, it's gone, you know, you know, to, to paraphrase Spinal Tap, it's really gone to an 11. Before COVID, you had a bipartisan consensus <laughs> that China was, was no longer, a, 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 you know, a strategic partner. They were a strategic competitor. And you saw that with, with high tech, specifically with 5G, but you, you're going to see that later this month with new export controls. You saw that with Huawei. Uh, and you've seen that on some of the human rights issues. Uh, but now with the pandemic, you have folks like, uh, you know, Tom Cotton, Republican from Arkansas, Josh Hawley, Republican from Missouri, really making almost sort of a, a reparation style push against the Chinese Communist Party uh, for their culpability in the pandemic. Uh, so it's really sort of across the board 
Uh, and then when you look at Vice President Biden, I mean, at the time, I thought it was a huge issue, but so much else was going on. Vice President Biden referred to Chairman Xi as a thug in the March uh, Democratic primary. Democrats tend to look at China more through the prism of, of human rights, labor, and the environment. So it's, um, it's a pretty tough forecast, really, regardless of, of who wins the presidency. Chris Kruger, great to catch up with you, sir. Chris Kruger there of Cowan. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.